My name's Alistair Burt, and I'm a former minister for the Middle East. As such, and as a backbench MP for over three decades, I've taken a long interest in the Middle East peace process in various iterations and lived through a number of moments of significance, some recognised as such at the time and others only later. We're approaching one such moment already recognised as such, the potential for Israel to proceed with elements of the so-called Trump plan, most notably from July the 1st, the annexation of land currently designated by international laws occupied, although Israel disputes both terms. To discuss this, I've recorded for the Conservative Middle East Council in the last couple of weeks, a series of podcasts of around 40 minutes each, and I express my very warm thanks and appreciation to Hussam Zumlot, the head of the Palestinian mission to the UK, to Mark Regev, the outgoing ambassador of the State of Israel, Nikolai Mladnov, the UN Special Coordinator for the Peace Process, and Ian Black, journalist and author, most notably of Enemies and Neighbours, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017. I hope you agree this could not be a more informed group at such a time. All along standing friends, and my approach has been to let Hussan Zumlot and Mark Regev largely make their own case, Nikolai Mladenov to explain how he is approaching this particular moment, and then discuss all three with Ian Black. So thank you for joining us, and I hope you find the talks worth your time, which is much appreciated. Let me start, if I may, with Hussam Zumlot, who is uh, who was born in Gaza, uh, is an author and diplomat by background. He is also strategic advisor to the president of the Palestinian Authority. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome you, Hussam. Thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Um, and I wonder if you would say a little bit about how you got to London uh, in the first place as in your role as head of the Palestinian mission here. Hello, Alistair. And uh, allow me first uh, to, to say that uh, what you said just now that you have been involved is such an understatement. You have been a source of inspiration and I'm so delighted uh, I'm having this conversation with a person who has passionately uh, served the cause of peace uh, in my region and beyond. You have our respect and our admiration. I That's came from I came from Washington, Alistair. Uh, uh, I was the Palestinian ambassador, the head of the PLO mission in Washington uh, up until uh, the end of 2018 when uh, President uh, Trump, the Trump administration, uh, closed, uh, shuttered our mission in Washington. And I was uh, reappointed uh, to the UK. Uh, and, you know, uh, I jokingly say that I enjoy London and the UK so much. And I have one person to thank now. That is President Trump himself. <laughs> I'm interested in your time in the US before you came here, if I may. Um, what impression did you form of United States opinion more broadly? Um, is there a distinction between Congress and the administration and public opinion? What did you make of America while you were there? You know, I remember, Alistair, uh, right at the height of my uh, time uh, in Washington as an ambassador, a friend of mine uh, asked me a question, and it was a phone conversation. He was in California, and he said, Hussam, uh, uh, how are you? I said, you know, I spent so many sleepless nights, to which he responded, I understand, I expected it, there are so many challenges. I said, no, my friend, it's, uh, I spent the sleepless nights not because of the challenges, but because of the opportunities. I was absolutely amazed, uh, surprised. I did not expect the, so many opportunities, Alistair, in the U.S., the, the transformations that are happening, the growing awareness, the knowledge, the connection uh, with, uh, by the younger generations. Uh, uh, and wherever you go, you feel that people uh, uh, are knowing more, connected more, want to know more. I mean, I, I, every day I felt 24 hours were simply not enough 
or a Palestinian representative to engage all those uh, wide range of circles and uh, constituencies and uh, ethnic minorities and intersectionality, what they call the, and with now what is happening in the U.S., uh, I mean, uh, my point of of wanting to be almost everywhere at the same time uh, proves the point. However, you know, the U.S. um, has the thing and it's opposite. I mean, the U.S. is the is the beacon of of liberty, democracy, constitutional arrangement. Uh, the U.S. is the place where most of human inventions happened in the last so many decades, uh, uh, including the internet and the and the smartphones and what have you. Every serious techn- technological leap we have taken over the last so many years came from the U.S. Yet. Uh, the U.S., as you may have seen only in the last couple of weeks, has a systematic racism and belt. Uh, there are two Americas that I have seen when I was there. There is the America uh, of rights, the bell of rights, uh, America, the land of opportunity, uh, America, the land of equality, America, America, the land of creativity in every sense, pushing you to the limit. And there is the other America. There is the uh, imperialist control, uh, closed off, uh, phobic. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, the, the best thing is how do we ally ourselves with the first America? You speak of America as a place of opportunities. And as far as the power brokers are concerned, particularly in Congress, I think the general impression over here is that it, it has been over the years an uphill struggle for those representing uh, the Palestinian cause to break into a Congress where the uh, the State of Israel uh, has a strong representative group of congressmen and women who think very seriously about their issues. Uh, and Congress itself seems to the outsider to have been more difficult for you to make a case than, uh, than it would be for the State of Israel. Was that your impression when you were there or was your sense that it might be changing? Yes, it was my impression. Uh, things are not easy for a Palestinian ambassador, uh, for a Palestinian voice uh, uh, in the U.S., uh, particularly when it comes to political entities like the Congress. Uh, yes, uh, people are fearful. Uh, uh, people uh, are calculating, especially politicians. And sometimes while they know that Palestine is an issue of justice, an issue of international law, uh, they calculate the political cost should they come uh, uh, public about their support. We understand all the dynamics, but I am certain that uh, my task was way easier than my predecessors, all my predecessors. And the trajectory of time is very clear that things in the U.S. are changing, maybe slowly sometimes, maybe faster in other uh, uh, moments. But uh, the trajectory is changing to the uh, side of uh, more brave uh, uh, voices, more principled voices, including in the Congress. In the last few weeks, we have seen so many congressmen and women who have written letters uh, about Israeli policies, including annexation. During my time, I used to literally uh, uh, visit the Congress every day, uh, meeting several senators, congresspeople. Uh, you know, I even, some of my friends would joke and say, Hussam, take your mattress uh, to the Congress uh, and spend uh, your nights there because I would leave the Congress literally at like almost midnight. So there were opportunities, many people uh, who would want to engage. And uh, uh, while Israel in the past has enjoyed an absolute bipartisan, waterproof, solid support, unquestioned uh, support, uh, you see uh, serious uh, uh, disagreements now, real rifts, 
uh, an opening uh, for uh, uh, discussions uh, about the U.S.-Israeli uh, relationship. And even the lobby in the U.S. is realizing that uh, no longer Netanyahu and his government are really aligning with the Jewish community in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I have many friends in the Jewish community in the U.S. And in the last few weeks, actually, uh, uh, we've been on the phone, on the video conferencing. Uh, I did address major constituencies in the U.S. in the last few days, and I'll be addressing another um, next week, uh, a joint uh, uh, Jewish leader and, and organizations in the U.S. and in the U.K. And uh, uh, it's obvious that Netanyahu has allied himself with the second America, if we link to the first question, uh, uh, with the America that is phobic and closed and America first and all that, not even with the progressive Jewish voices there. So there are changes in the U.S. and um, in, in every sphere, in every sphere. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, Trump administration has tried to undermine that change uh, to uh, deliver a preemptive sort of strike on all those who want to see a different future in the region. We'll come back to the, the US in a, in a moment when we talk about the proposals that are currently on the table. But as you said, uh, the American administration helped you uh, make a decision to come to the UK a couple of years ago. Um, before we talk about the proposals and the, the plans for going forward, both yours and those of the uh, Middle East peace process, tell me a little bit about, about how you've seen the UK. Um, what did you make of the UK processes when you got here and those you were dealing with? Oh, I did not expect that. But fascinating, really, um, uh, Alissa. Uh, uh, you know, this is not the first time I am in the UK. I studied here the School of Economics. I lived here for many years uh, as a student, and then I worked here uh, for many years. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, London, the UK, has always been a source of uh, real fascination. I mean, in, in every uh, uh, meaning of the sense, uh, I don't think there is any other city uh, than London that can really, really not only acknowledge uh, and respect differences, but actually celebrate differences. You don't see that anywhere else. You see uh, multi-faceted, um, you see multicultural cities all over, diverse cities, New York, Paris, and what have you. Uh, but only London can actually celebrate you as is, as who you are, uh, and no, no expectation of a change. There is such uh, openness and um, uh, humility in the in the British culture, humility towards other sympathy, and uh, that is something that I have uh, uh, seen also upon my return to the UK a year and a half uh, uh, ago. Uh, um, however, if you really mean about uh, the UK um, public opinion and decision-making process vis-a-vis -vis Palestine, the peace process, uh, uh, I am worried, Alistair, I must say, about the widening, growing gap between the public opinion, and it's uh, it's clear the public opinion supports uh, justice and peace in the Middle East. They support the end of Israel's occupation in every single uh, poll that is conducted, in every occasion. Uh, and that was manifested in the parliament decision in 2014 to recognize the state of Palestine. And I know you were a member of parliament then. Uh, 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 because the parliament is the manifestation of the of the will of the people. Those are the elected uh, uh, political representatives. I am worried that the gap between all that, the public opinion and the government, uh, is widening and growing. And I hope uh, that this gap is going to be uh, uh, bridged uh, as soon as possible. My own uh, feeling, as you know, is that the, uh, the issues being brought forward by the plan announced by President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu in January is in a way beginning to force decisions uh, and maybe contributing either to the widening of that gap or the closing of it because of where we are. And I would like now to to look at the, uh, the immediate 
prospects and and begin with that uh, with that deal. I uh, was involved, as you're aware, and I spoke on a number of occasions to uh, Jason Greenblatt uh, over the period of time that the Americans were looking at this. Um, and uh, as you know, the Americans kept this extremely close to themselves before it was revealed last uh, last January. What was what was your sense of the process? I mean, I remember being interested that it was a first term president uh, tackling the Middle East peace process. As we both know from the history of this, very often it was a situation that first term presidents of the United States left alone and then a second term president would really get into it. And I think no one worked harder than President Obama and John Kerry uh, in the uh, in their efforts uh, recently. But President Trump said he would do the deal of the century and he would do it up front uh, as Part of his first term. What did you? What have you made of the process uh, before we get to talking about the decision made or the announcement in January? What did you think of the process that led up to that and the engagement of uh, Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner, and Ambassador Friedman in uh, in Israel? You know, as an ambassador, I it was my job to meet them, and I did uh, meet them several times, and I, I engaged uh, Kushner and I engaged Greenblatt uh, uh, in many, many occasions in the White House and um, uh, with my president when my president was visiting or when President Trump would be visiting uh, Palestine. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, there were two schools here. The first was that these people come from a certain background, all of them, uh, they are very, they are zealots, uh, uh, they are pro-settlers, uh, they are actually uh, uh, involved uh, in the settlement exercise illegally for the last 20 years, and they brag about it, they're public about it. Uh, they are actually the most extreme, and uh, that will inform their uh, worldview, that will inform their policies and their intervention. The second school of thought was saying, uh, perhaps because they are the zealots, and because they are such extreme voices, uh, they might actually help uh, 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 bring about, you know, the right-wing elements into a peace process. Well, the second school of thought have proven to be uh, wrong and was defeated. Uh, this group could not remove itself from its background and past and ideologies, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, and as a result, they did not really present anything that would resolve the conflict. Everything they presented with, with us was trying to rewrite uh, and redefine the conflict. From a conflict that is between two national movements uh, that uh, would uh, would be resolved on the basis of the self-determination for the two sides, two states uh, uh, that would cooperate together uh, and, and really create a new dynamics uh, uh, based on international legitimacy and legality for the last 50 years uh, uh, um, and based on numerous UN Security Council resolutions. From that, uh, they wanted to reframe it into an issue of jobs and, uh, you know, uh, earning uh, more money, improving the lives of the Palestinians under occupation. And they dropped totally the idea of self-determination to the Palestinians. They looked down at us. And uh, that explains why uh, Trump would uh, close uh, our mission in Washington. It's, a, it's an act of de-recognition of the, of, the, uh, of the Palestinian leadership and people's People's hood, uh, you know, a mission means representation, collective rights, and that also explains to you why they shuttered down the U.S. Consulate General in in Jerusalem, which has been there since 1844. I mean, long before Israel was established, and it has been serving as a key contact. Uh, point between the U.S. people and government and the Palestinian people and government. Uh, and now, now, since they closed it down also in 2018, they call it the 
Palestinian unit in the U.S. embassy to Israel, which tells you all what you need to know about the rewriting, redefining, reframing, that now we, the people of Palestine, are only an internal issue within Israel. Can I ask? Can I ask this? At a particular stage in the discussions with uh, Kushner and, and Greenblatt, a decision was taken that the Palestinians negotiation negotiators would leave. Was it a U.S. decision to say we're no longer going to carry on talking with you, or was it a Palestinian decision to say we're not going to be part of this any longer? It was a U.S. decision, and I keep saying everywhere I go, Alistair, this is a very important question, that there is such a wide misperception uh, that it's the Palestinians who decided to cut ties and uh, employ a policy of no contact with the U.S. It's the other way around. I was sitting in my office on the 16th of November, my Washington uh, office mission, on the 16th of November 2017, at 5.35 p.m., my phone rings. It was my good friend, uh, Michael Ratney from the State Department. He was the head of the Near East uh, and North Africa. And he told me in that conversation that uh, I have, you know, uh, bad news. I said, bring it on, Michael. We are, we are accustomed and familiar with bad news. He said, your office is to be closed. Frankly, Alistair, my, my head was spinning which office he's talking about. It did not even occur to me. He's talking about the PLO office in Washington. Because when, when Michael called me, it was at the height of the engagement with the US administration. I would be going to the White House once or twice uh, a week. Uh, President Abbas met President Trump already four times in a matter of weeks. It was the peak of the engagement. So uh, uh, the decision to close our office uh, was tailored, designed by those who wanted to derail that engagement. You know, how do you poison a relationship between two parties? Close their embassy. I mean, if you close it, then it's almost an irreversible poisonous process, spiral process, which which already uh, uh, got its impact. So there, there is somebody in that team, uh, some group, I don't want to mention names, but allow me, I'm aching to mention uh, one extra name, uh, uh, that is Sheldon Adelson, the casino guru, uh, who was pushing and pushing and pushing the, uh, the Trump side their friends, Miami, Florida, uh, to actually uh, uh, reverse the engagement with the Palestinian uh, leadership, de-recognize the Palestinian uh, leadership, and uh, 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 do the rest uh, of what uh, was done, uh, hitting UNRWA uh, bad because of the issue of the rights of the refugees, cutting all funding to the Palestinian Authority, uh, 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 recognizing Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, etc., etc. So, uh, in one sentence, it was a U.S. act, deliberate act, of undermining uh, uh, the previous 30 years of U.S. involvement from President uh, uh, Bush, the father, all the way to President Obama. Following the uh, announcement in, in January, a um, period of time has elapsed. The uh, Israeli government has, uh, has changed, formed a, a, a coalition, and it, it seems clear by its announcement that uh, Article you know, 29 of the agreement between uh, amongst those in the Israeli government uh, suggests that uh, on July the 1st it becomes legitimate for uh, Israel to take action uh, uh, under the agreement with uh, with President Trump. Um, many of the details of that agreement are uh, of the uh, of the Trump plan are known to people who will be listening to this podcast. Uh, and I particularly wanted to concentrate a little bit on the annexation proposals or the so-called annexation proposals. Could you explain what you take to be the annexation proposals and just explain to those who will be listening to this why this is unacceptable to the Palestinian people? 
you know, if we if we go into the details of annexation, I, I need. I think you need another two, three hours. But it's, I understand. You're it's, being very good to to agree to do something more uh, more briefly. I do understand. No, no, no. But uh, but the, the 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 issue of annexation uh, is a matter of principle before uh, discussion about the size and the location. And I think um, uh, annexation is meant to deliver one main function, one main purpose for uh, for the current Israeli government, which is the end of partition. It's a it's an announcement, a statement, a commitment to end the concept of partition. If you go back to the Trump so-called ultimate deal, and it has nothing to do with deals or ultimates for that matter, um, you will see that uh, part of its provisions was that Israel will always have the um, security sovereignty, control of the area between the river and the sea. And Alistair, I know how many years and decades of your life you spent on, on this issue. You know very well that uh, the, the whole premise uh, of uh, the international framework uh, is that, you know, uh, 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 and the international pressure on us, the Palestinians, in the 70s and the 80s, is that we, the Palestinian people, have to give up the idea of Palestine from the river to the sea. And we must accept the international logic, the international legitimacy, the international equilibrium that this land must be uh, uh, shared. Uh, and, you know, the PLO did accept that and did recognize in writing Yasser Arafat uh, uh, recognized the state of Israel on the 1967 borders. And by the way, many people mix this. They think the two-state solution is a Palestinian demand. No, it was never a Palestinian demand. And before the PLO accepted the two-state solution and declared a state of Palestine on the 1967 borders, i.e. West Bank, including East Jerusalem as its capital, and Gaza on the 15th of November 1988. Before that, the PLO platform was one state from the river to the sea. Uh, now, the, the, the PLO did accept that because the PLO, representing the people of Palestine, realizing that allying ourselves with international legitimacy is such a powerful act, and that 22% of historic Palestine would be a, a space for us to call home and to have a state, and then a launching pad, really, for different engagements and involvements and partnerships and neighborly relationship with everybody. It's a compromise. So it was such a concession. Now, what Netanyahu is doing with annexation, and let me assure you that what he means by annexation is not parts of the West Bank. It's the entire West Bank. So the moment he annexes uh, 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 all these blocks he calls illegal settlement blocks, and the Jordan Valley, it's the entire West Bank. So when he was asked recently, last week, what will happen to the Palestinian population and people uh, on this land, he said they will remain in their enclaves. You know what, enclaves, uh, Aka, Aka, Pantostans. Um, so uh, it is in effect an end of, of the whole concept of partition. It is in effect, Netanyahu is telling the world and telling us it's Israel from the river uh, uh, to the sea. It is what he told Trump, and that's why it came out in the, in the plan. We are only individuals who seek embetterment of our lives, and we must be grateful for being handed some, uh, you know, primitive jobs in Israeli farms, uh, uh, the, the slave-master relationship on our own land, by the way. This is the whole dynamic of annexation. And should it happen, it means the end of the two-state solution. And should it happen, it really would spell the beginning of the end of the post-World War II rules-based order, because the premise of that order, of that system that Britain contributed chiefly in cre creating after the horrors of the Second War, 
the premise of that order is the inadmissibility of acquiring land by force. To what extent is it true to say that the security of the Jordan Valley was always Valley has always been absolutely fundamental to the state of Israel? This has been known all the way through all the negotiations, and therefore, uh, the annexation of the the territory is something that has always been known about and always likely to be part of uh, an end settlement to this. You know, I don't need to uh, say this. I, please, Alistair, only last week uh, there were so many Israeli security you know, leaders uh, who were who saying this is nonsense. So it's not just me. It, of course it's nonsense. It's nonsense in the area and in the era of uh, uh, rockets and, uh, you know, short range and long range and all that. It did not, it does, from a security point of view, it does not gain you one ounce of a security reassurances. The same thing about the wall that Israel has built since 2002. And, you know, only in the last two, three weeks, we, we have discovered 364 holes, 364 holes in that wall because workers, because of the corona pandemic, we've been trying to regulate uh, the return of workers uh, to Israel or from Israel so we contain and control the infection. And we are discovering all these things. Uh, so Israel did not erect the wall to prevent people from, you know, if, if 364 holes, I mean, people can do whatever they wish. It's all uh, about land grab and greed. Why the Jordan Valley? It's the food basket of the West Bank. It's the water reservoir of, of Palestine. It's the strategic element of our, of our land. And if you go to the Israeli settlements there, you will notice that the absolute vast majority of them are economic ventures, uh, growing the majority, which is big dates, uh, creating manufacturing, uh, uh, bringing cheap Palestinian labor, using uh, uh, and stealing our water, uh, erecting uh, 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 tourism sites on our occupied shores of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. So it's primarily an economic extortion exercise. Okay. It, it, it's been clear from uh, reaction to the proposals from many parts of the world, including the uh, the Arab world, the suggestions made by, by President Trump and perhaps the Netanyahu in, uh, in, in January. So stopping annexation uh, clearly has become a, a policy in itself. But it's not an end in itself. And, and many people who've studied this for a long period of time, again, are faced with the issue. It, if it's not this, and plainly for many people, this is not the answer, what is? Uh, what is being put in the pot for further discussion now by uh, Palestinian representatives themselves, others who have supported the Palestinian cause? Because uh, it, it is not the status quo being inherently unstable with this issue still not resolved. What is being said by the Palestinians to say, if not this, why don't we do so and so? No, this is not about if not this, we will get, get that. And I hear all, all the discussions uh, all over, uh, you know, that now Israel has literally killed the discussion about geography because it has fragmented the geography beyond repair. I hear that. I heard Secretary Kerry already 45 years ago giving his last speech and saying Israel has only a year, a year and a half before uh, the end of all this. No, this is not how it works. Uh, you must be principled on what you demand. And I think the Palestinian leadership have, have come to the conclusion that the two-state solution was not just an international requirement. It's, it's what is possible. And I think they are much more uh, into the arena of possibility rather than desirability. And I tell you, many of Palestinians would love to see an, an egalitarian, democratic one state. 
state that respects the rights of all of its citizens, regardless of their color or creed or language or religion or what have you. Uh, 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 but that state might be far from now, given the Netanyahu uh, 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 phenomena, given the uh, rise of the right wing in Israel, given the law that was passed only a year and a half ago in Israel against uh, 20% of the Israeli citizens, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, that specifically said that the, the right of self-determination is only uh, uh, dedicated to Jews in this area, in this area between the river and the sea. By the way, uh, historic Palestine. So, given all that, I think the the more possible is the two-state solution. The question is, how do we get to a two-state solution? Um, given the calculus in Israel now, and it's it's simple. It's a matter of calculus, Alistair. Uh, uh, the calculation of Netanyahu, who is a politician, not a statesman, who waits for the 10 p.m. news, unfortunately, and who wants to use every single issue. Uh, for the uh, betterment uh, of his own interest and dodging criminal charges and being re-elected uh, uh, to a big success, I must credit him, uh, uh, including the issue of annexation, i.e. killing the two-state solution. Uh, 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 the question is, how do we change the calculus? He tells the Israeli public that he can be the one who actually turned this occupation into a permanent reality, permanent occupation, and at the same time, normalize with the Arab world and will be no consequences from the international community. I think... Do you, expect, do you expect the Arab world to seek to change the calculus you're talking about? What do you expect Arab states to do? Well, I heard King, the King of Jordan saying that this will lead to severe consequences. And I, I think the King of Jordan speaks uh, uh, not only because of solidarity with the people of Palestine, and there is abundance of that solidarity uh, in Jordan, uh, but uh, because of strategic, the strategic national interests of Jordan. I mean, the Jordanian security doctrine hinges on the two-state solution for reasons, Alistair, you know, and your listeners know. So so does Egypt. I mean, Gaza for Egypt is, is such an issue. And Egypt wants to see strategically now, both politics aside, solidarity, feelings, emotions, uh, it's a security threat. It's a security issue. And Egypt wants Gaza to be part of the Palestinian state, part of the West Bank and Jerusalem. So uh, I believe the Arab world, when they say this is going to lead to uh, 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 damaging and undermining regional uh, stability and regional uh, security, so you will see you will see uh, uh, some actions. Uh, but we we will need more because so far, uh, uh, none of these actions coming from the region or the rest of the international community has really really changed the calculus in Tel Aviv. It's one thing to consider what to do if the annexation goes ahead. And clearly, that is on the mind of, of many people outside the region as well as in it. But it's quite another to say, how can we put something on the table that is uh, a positive move forward, which is better than what is already there? Do you envisage that happening? Uh, frankly, there has been so many proposals, uh, uh, Alistair, over the years. And, uh, you know, I lost count. You're talking about tens of proposals. And yes. Been the longest, longest negotiation process in the recorded history of mankind. Yes. I mean, we've been on the table for 27 years. Uh, this isn't about creative proposals. The proposal that came out of the UN Security Council already in 1967, uh, already as early as the occupation began, is a very reasonable uh, uh, proposition. Uh, the issue is, is, is that can we actually find a mechanism whereby it is not just might that will determine the final outcome of negotiation, but it is also right, and it is also internationalism, and it's also common sense, 
and it's also our wish for a different interaction in the future, or is the immediate politicians need? And we have not found that because the U.S. was the sole arbitrator, if you may, for the last 27 years, uh, has had a, mo- a monopoly over the peace process. And it has it has not managed to actually uh, be that uh, doctor uh, that could save the two-state solution and could be faithful to the principle and could be good in terms of its dealing with it. It was simply unable to uh, remove itself from the fact that Israel in the U.S. is not a foreign policy issue. Israel in the U.S. is a domestic issue. Uh, And that's why we are saying, the PLO is saying, the Palestinian leadership, President Abbas is saying, that the hope, if we really want to implement the two-state solution, we must create an international peacemaking mechanism. Uh, uh, the U.S. alone cannot do it. We need the world. We need the United Kingdom. We need the European Union. We need uh, Russia, China, Brazil, uh, uh, South Africa. We need everybody on the table. And of course, we need the Arab world. And we need to balance this, le- uh, leverage the field. We also say that, you know, already there is such an asymmetry. And don't add up to the asymmetry between Israel and, and Palestine. So recognize the state of Palestine and apply international law, apply sanctions on settlement products, Uh, make sure that the calculus in Israel uh, will change and therefore the public will deliver a different verdict in the earliest opportunity. One thing that's suggested that might make a difference (laughs) would be if uh, if the Palestinian people were being seen to speak with a single voice. Ramallah and Gaza still uh, either don't talk to each other or have no uh, serious relationship. There have been no elections, no agreements on that. Do you, at, at various times, there have been efforts at reconciliation, but my understanding at the moment is things are pretty, pretty cold. Do you see any change in that? And do you appreciate what a difference that might make? Yeah, only two days ago was the 13th anniversary of, uh, or commemoration, I must have said, uh, of the Hamas coup d'etat in Gaza uh, on the 13th of June 2007. And this has been the bleakest chapter in our history, and nothing hurts us uh, more than internal rifts and divisions, as you uh, uh, alluded in your question. But, uh, you know, issues of uh, Palestinians uh, uh, being uh, uh, united and speaking in one voice uh, in front of the international community uh, uh, has, has, is, is, in a way, secured. And uh, if uh, we blame anything for the uh, coup d'etat in Gaza and the situation in Gaza. It was the lack of, a, of, the, of the progress in the peace process, uh, because, you know, these uh, such voices would really rise uh, and gain momentum uh, uh, at the failure of achieving what we have promised our people to achieve. That's number one. And the way Sharon uh, pulled out of Gaza in 2005, only a year and a half before that coup d'etat by Hamas, was actually to pave the way. Uh, he did it without coordination with the President Abbas and the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian Authority. And it was done in a way to create a vacuum, a vacuum for what happened. And since then, Israel has laid siege uh, on Gaza that was absolutely counterproductive in every single sense of the world. Uh, nonetheless, the Palestinians have a voice, that is the Palestine Liberation Organization. We have a political platform, that is the two-state solution, based on UN Security Council resolutions and implementing them. And that platform includes every Palestinian faction. Hamas itself has said many times that we 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 give legitimacy to the PLO to negotiate on our behalf. The only request we have is actually to offer whatever you agreed for a referendum, and you know which is fine. <coughs> so the bottom line is, if Israel has a partner, uh, there is a partner in the Palestinian side, even with the rift. But during Yasser Arafat's time in 2000 and, um, 
1, 2, 3 when they besieged him in the Muqata'a, we had no division with Gaza. And Yasser Arafat was speaking on behalf of every Palestinian. And it was live on TV what Israel uh, did to uh, the founder of our movement. So I, I think uh, it's a very hurtful real issue, the rift, the Gaza situation, and we must deal with it. We must end it. Uh, and election is the best way to do so. But it does not undermine any genuine efforts towards achieving a two-state solution. In fact, such efforts would help us closing that bleak chapter. We're nearly at the at the end of our time now, Busam, and thank you for being generous with your time and also with your answers. And I just wanted to ask a couple of questions to, to round off. Uh, and I wanted to start with the, with the UN and what prospects you see of the UN being able to help at this stage. I'm going to be speaking later in this podcast series to Nikolai Mladenov, who's now done some years as the UN Secretary General Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. Um, bearing in mind the problems with the UN Security Council, the use of veto and everything else, are you still hopeful that the UN can provide a, a way out of the impasse that we're heading towards in relation to the Middle East peace process? Yes, I am. <clears throat> I am hopeful. The United Nations was established for the, this particular purpose, to maintain world peace and, and stability. That's the UN Charter. That's the first provision in the Charter. And, uh, um, you know, uh, while uh, the system might be ineffective in some cases, uh, uh, can benefit from reforms um, and what have you, we have no better alternative. The only alternative to the United Nations is simply chaos, is the, is the role of the jungle. And, and we see the forces like that of Netanyahu and the settler movement, and like that in the US and the Trump administration, who are anti-multilateralism, anti-cooperation, uh, anti-UN, uh, and they just want to grab whatever they can. And this is the role of the jungle. This is, this is exactly what we have learned from the Second World War. Uh, this is what we have witnessed in the 40s and the is the horrors uh, that has led all of us to say never again and never again. So we have no alternative but to keep the international cooperation. And the UN is the symbol of that uh, cooperation. The UN has a huge um, function to do in Palestine in terms of services. and They are doing uh, a huge job and we are grateful, particularly UNRWA, because we have all these refugees, <clears throat> you know, and, and aware of them. 80% of Gaza people are, are provided for by UNRWA. So it's a, it's a, it's a lifeline, uh, not just a necessity or a privilege. It's a lifeline in education and health and what have you. And we are very grateful uh, for all that the UN is doing, not only UNRWA. Uh, However, we are hoping, as you said in your question, we are really hoping that uh, you know the UN would also be capable uh, to actually find ways to implement its own resolutions. I mean, the people of Palestine are sick and tired, frankly, of receiving an, a resolution after another uh, uh, without uh, these resolutions being uh, uh, effective and uh, and implemented. And there are ways that the world can actually cooperate. Uh, the Quartet is an important entity, but it has become three plus one, i.e., you know, the U.S. is pushing for its so-called ultimate deal, which undermines international law. But there are three other entities, voices, the European Union, uh, 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 the U UN itself, and Russia, who are saying this is unacceptable. So we will need to see the, the, the alliance of the willing, if you may, uh, really uh, 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 moving ahead, not only to save Palestine, Alistair. Uh, I, as a, as a person, we as a people, see the danger of Netanyahu and the annexation and the recklessness and the vested interests and the greed, uh, 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 a threat 
that, that goes beyond us, far beyond us. And it becomes a matter of who's next. If he annexes and if he does all that he wishes simply because he has the F-16s and the Markava tanks and the support of the sole superpower, the U.S., and the complicity of the rest of the international community, then you're looking about 100 Netanyahu's who will be doing the same. So uh, I hope uh, your conversation with uh, our friend uh, Ladenov would, would, would really reveal how much the UN can actually uh, work uh, to bring the world together towards resolution of our conflict. Thank you very much, Hussam. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I appreciate very much the time you've taken to uh, expound the Palestinian position in relation to the current immediate uh, issues facing the Middle East peace process. Um, but a last question for, for you. Uh, when do you expect to be the ambassador for the state of Palestine to the court of St. James? Oh, uh, well, I, I, I wish I had arrived to the UK as the ambassador of the state of Palestine to the court of, uh, of St. Uh, James. Uh, I'm grateful to you personally, uh, um, uh, Alistair, for receiving me upon my, uh, uh, my arrival as the Minister for Middle East uh, and, uh, you know, giving Palestine what it really deserves of respect uh, and reciprocity and receiving my credentials. If you remember that famous photo, always cherish. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but I, I really think that this recognition of the state of Palestine uh, has been long overdue, uh, Alistair. I, I, for, the, for the life of me, for heaven's sake, I don't understand why uh, the UK did not recognize the state of Palestine. I mean, uh, the UK, uh, forget about the rest of the world, the UK, A, having issued the Balfour Declaration, would really want to see uh, some sort of stability and peace and cooperation in that region, what you call the unfinished business. And there is a moral responsibility here. And I, I don't think any other country would 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 be in um, in despair to see its own declaration turning into full-fledged apartheid and this is exactly what Netanyahu is doing uh, uh, and uh, recognizing the two states would actually stop that monstrous uh, evolution uh, uh, of sheer racism and suffering uh, for many generations to come and also the UK has founded the international system, the post-World War uh, uh, rules-based system. It, the first General Assembly was in London, not in New York. The first Secretary General of the United Nations was British. So the UK, among all others, especially the UK, has such a, an, an interest to and, and a duty and a responsibility on behalf of all of us to defend these rules and to ensure that we don't go back to the time of the of, of Caius. And thirdly and lastly, after Brexit and with all that is happening, I mean, the UK would want to lead that uh, global front. And we saw just the uh, summit on vaccine. And we are so inspired by the fact that the UK want to bring us to together in the time of Trump, actually. And we needed the UK to do so. So Israel-Palestine is an opportunity for the United Kingdom to correct the history, to enforce the law, and to move us in a different direction. And I pray to God, if it was a bit late recognizing Palestine, it would not wait much longer. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and, uh, and I will only close by saying to you, as uh, I will say to Mark Regev when I speak to him, that having spent the 37 years since I first became a member of parliament with a very close interest in this issue, uh, I really don't wish to spend the next 37 years dealing with the issue, uh, but would like to see it resolved, resolved on the basis of a uh, secure uh, Israel uh, side by side with the state of Palestine uh, and a just 
settlement for the issues that have uh, been part of our world for for rather too long and remembering all the people who were involved because at the end of the day it's about their futures but thank you so much for being so open with your answers uh, and uh, to all those who have listened the way through to the uh, end of the conversation uh, there will be three other podcasts to listen to mark regger the ambassador of the state of israel to the uk Ian Black, noted journalist and author, and Nikolai Mladenov, the uh, special coordinator for the Middle East peace process as part of this series. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair.